This episode of The Working Experience is also brought to you by an app that I created called Still Believe. Still Believe transforms a picture in your home into video proof of children's favorite magical characters. With the app, parents can catch the magic of the tooth fairy leaving money under their child's pillow or Santa delivering presents on Christmas Eve in their home. You download the app, take a picture, and we create the magic. We utilize feature film visual effects artists to transform your picture into your Still Believe video to amaze your children. You can tell your kids that you have a special app that can detect and capture the Tooth Fairy and Santa and then present them with the video proof in the morning. The look on their faces is priceless. Your Still Believe video is created in minutes and you can then save it to your phone and share it on social media. The app is free to download and also has in-app purchases. So for $3, you can catch the Tooth Fairy in your home. The Still Believe app is available for the iPhone on the App Store and Android on Google Play. Our aim is to bring joy and wonder into the hearts of children around the world. Check it out at stillbelieve.co. And that's S-T-I-L-L-B-E-L-I-E-V-E dot C-O. The Still Believe app was created by my digital media agency, One Circle Media. One Circle creates content that builds networks and audiences across multiple platforms, servicing networks, studios, brands, and Fortune 500 clients. Check out our work at OneCircleDigital.com and OneCircleBrand.com. If you work for a studio, network, startup, or corporation and are looking for a partner to create media that will build, engage, and entertain your audience, reach out to me at John, J-O-H-N, at OneCircleMedia.com or DM me on Instagram at John Brancaccio, and that's J-O-H-N-B-R-A-N-C-A-C-C-I-O. I'd love to hear from you. Thanks, everyone, and I hope you enjoy this episode of The Working Experience. On today's podcast, I had the pleasure of talking with David Heinemanner Hansen, who is the co-founder of Basecamp. And he is also the New York Times bestselling co-author of We Work in Remote. He's also the creator of Ruby on Rails, which has been used to launch and power Twitter, Shopify, GitHub, Airbnb, Square, and over a million other web applications. He's originally from Denmark, but he's moved to Chicago and he splits his time between the U.S. and Spain with his wife and two sons. We talk about his book, It Doesn't Have to Be Crazy at Work. It's very an anti-hustle message. It was a very enlightening conversation. And Dave and I go pretty deep into work-life balance, what it means to run an ethical company, how to treat your employees, uh, all good stuff. Uh, so I hope you enjoy this episode of The Working Experience. The Working Experience. Route 93 North is almost at a standstill. It's a rough one out there this morning. Snow and sleet. There is no service on Stand the- clear of the closing doors, please. Uh, yeah, folks, we're going to be a few minutes. We have train traffic ahead of us. We should be moving shortly. John, we need that report ASAP. Where are we on that presentation? And HR wants to see you. Did you return that email yet? We have a team meeting at 10. Did you stay late, Bob? Teamwork makes the dream work. They're moving in a different and after the meeting, we'll have a breakout session. Who ate my Where are my hot pockets? This microwave is disgusting. Oh, God, what's that? He was wow. living his Sexual toenails at his desk. I can't take it anymore. I can't take it anymore.
Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Working Experience. I am joined today by David Heinemeiner Hansen from Basecamp. He has a new book out, which I thoroughly enjoyed, called It Doesn't Have to Be Crazy at Work. David, can you say hello to our listeners? Hey, everyone. Thanks for having me. Excellent. So, David, could you give us uh, just a short bio of... Um, of who you are, how you started Basecamp, all that good stuff. Sure. So I'm originally from Copenhagen, Denmark. I met Jason Fried, who's my business partner at Basecamp back in 2001, when he posted an uh, entry on the blog saying, I'm trying to learn a PHP to build this application. Does anyone know how to do pagination? Can you help me? And I had just been a fan of the blog for the company, which was called 37 Signals at the time. And I thought, hey, I know the answer. I'm just sitting here in Copenhagen, Denmark. Jason is in Chicago, Illinois. Uh, I sent him an email. We start talking. And before you know it, he decides it's easier to hire me than to learn how to program. And we started working together. And we worked for a couple of years together on a variety of um, uh, consulting projects. And then in 2003, we started work on Basecamp. Um, I was the sole technical person on the project, and um, Jason led the design side with a couple of people helping out. And we launched Basecamp in 2004, um, basically sort of as a side project, as a side project to a consulting business that was just doing web design for clients. Well, uh, about a year or so later, we went full-time committed to being a software company and have been doing that ever since. And in the process of uh, running this software company for the past uh, 15 years, we've learned a lot of things and we've tried to share those lessons in a variety of forms, including four different books, the latest of which, as you referenced, is called It Doesn't Have to Be Crazy at Work. And um, also speaking at conferences and releasing a bunch of software um, I created something called Ruby on Rails as part of uh, creating Basecamp. And Ruby on Rails helped create a Twitter. It helped create uh, Shopify and GitHub and Hulu and a bunch of other tech platforms that people probably know. Um, and I'm still also running that uh, about 15 years later, and we're still continuing to, to improve those things. So those are really the two big um, works of my life is Basecamp and Ruby on Rails. Wow. And so so when Jason first met you and you joined together, was it initially over, because you were in Denmark and he was in, I'm assuming, Chicago, was it over email that you guys connected? Did you ever physically meet up? Yeah, it took about six months, I think, where the only thing we did was uh, train emails and uh, instant messenger, which is called ICQ in those days. And uh, six months later, I think we got on the phone for the first time. And another six months later, I believe Jason came to Copenhagen for a conference. So that was the first time we met in person. So it's definitely a very uh, remote-focused um, working relationship, which is something that we've then strived to keep the, the company in that spirit. So today we have 54 employees at Basecamp and the vast majority of them work from home all over the world. Uh, the majority of them in, in the US, but we have people in Canada, something South America. We have people in Spain and the UK and, and Germany. And that all sort of came out of our experience uh, founding the software company uh, remotely. And that was actually the topic of our third book called Remote Office Not Required, basically spreading that message that given the tools that we have today, there's absolutely no reason why people should sit 
30, 40, 60 minutes in traffic to commute into some office that will just make them absolutely mad and waste their life away. Um, instead, we can work remotely over the internet and do even better work than we, we could have if we sat in the same office together. Yeah, it's, it's crazy because that's one of the, the, the messages from the book that really rang true with me. And I, and I think that the majority of people out there just don't know that it's possible. It's almost like, you know, the story of, you know, you, you chain an elephant to a stake when they're just a little baby and then the elephant grows up, right? Yes. And will never pull on that stake, even though when it's a full grown elephant, it could rip that stake right out of the ground. And all people know is the, the dredge of the 60 to 90 minute commute going into these these fake office environments with fluorescent lights and sitting at a desk and not moving and taking attendance you know it's almost almost like a prison system and then getting back on that train or getting in that car and rinse and repeating that and not realizing that that's 70 to 80% of their waking hours and <clears throat> it's just What's so refreshing about your book is it, here's with Basecamp, here's a real life example of it working remote, you know, remote working. And obviously that's due to technology. You know, if this was if this was 1960, 1970, I think it would be a, a lot harder to pull that off. But with the Internet, with smartphones, with, you know, we're on Skype right now and having a conversation you can get, you know, a lot of things done remotely. Absolutely. And I think that learned helplessness is a key motivation for us when we write the books. That we want to basically open your mind to just a different view. Just, uh, it reminds me of another story, which was, I think it was like in in the 40s and, and you have these um, uh, track and field expedition and everyone was like you can't run I forget what it was maybe the 500 meter in less than four minutes or something and for for however long people were doing no one was breaking that barrier then one person breaks the barrier one person goes below four minute and obviously everyone else goes like oh it's possible and the following year like 15 people go below four minutes so as soon as you see the example that this can actually be done it opens your mind i think in a in a different way than if we're just talking about it so i think that that's part of the unique appeal of our story is that we aren't just either academics or journalists or someone describing how other people work we're telling you how we work and how we have been working for the past 15 years. So this isn't sort of a, a thought experiment. This is a description of facts. Um, and I think once you see that description of facts and, and see that people are able not only to work in another way, but to be successful in all the traditional metrics of success, uh, when you work like that, I think it... Um, it really opens your mind. And that's the a lot of the feedback that we actually get from readers is this sense that they kind of already knew this, but they were afraid to say so. They were afraid to talk to others about it. They were afraid to question uh, basically the paradigm that they were under that, well, maybe it isn't best that I spend uh, 60, 90 minutes of my life every single day commuting. But this is just not something we're talking about. This is water. This is just the environment that we're in and we're taking it for granted. 
I think one of the key motivations for both Jason and I in running our own company is to take nothing for granted, is to start from first principles in all the material ways and question all the ways that we were working when we worked for other people and saw those ways and went, huh, that doesn't actually make a whole lot of sense to me. So now that we have the power to set our own policies and do our own experiments, um, we're coming up with some, I think, interesting results for, for that matter. And I'm hoping in part that the book not only opens people's mind to what we've learned, but open people's minds to the idea that you can actually experiment, that the set regimen that we have around work or productivity or creativity is very much reopen for interpretation and reopen for experimentation and that there's all sorts of lessons that you can take in, in ways where you can improve your company and improve your life and improve your work if you dare question some of the fundamentals and um so the so the goal of the book is it to is it to get this message out because look david you you and jason you run a very successful business um you you know, you have a, you know, you're, you're also running Ruby on Rails. You have a bunch of other stuff that you're doing. Why the book? Why, why spread the message? Is it because you, you feel that your fellow man is in prison and you need, you need to break them free? So what, what's the inspiration? What's the goal? Yeah, so I think, uh, for me at least, the inspiration is, is quite close to the latter, that looking at what is, in my opinion, human misery and human suffering, which is, for example, let's just take the commute. Um, I think if you aggregate the amount of human misery and suffering that is compounded through everyone commuting around the world, it's a staggering number. Um, so to make just a small dent in that is an empowering feeling. And I also just feel like we have something to say here. Um, when I see the way the world ticks, and uh, compare it to our experience at Basecamp and go, do you know what? There's nothing magic about what we do at Basecamp. It's not like we're particularly gifted. It's not like we're particularly uh, well endowed with resources. It's not like we've had uh, a bunch of advantages that aren't available to a lot of other companies in our same situation, yet we've arrived at different outcomes and we've arrived at different outcomes, not just for ourselves, but for our employees and for our customers, that we should spread that. And I think part of it is also comes from the fact that um, I've lived at a few different places around the world. I, I grew up in Copenhagen, Denmark, for, and stayed there for about 25 years. And then I've spent about eight years in Spain. And the cultural relativity you get when you live in different um, societies really provides you with that stark contrast of life can be very different. Uh, Denmark, for example, and the U.S. are alike in very many ways. They share all the same philosophical underpinnings and cultural leanings in, in a lot of ways. Yet we've arrived at very different outcomes for a lot of people. And so some of our message and some of my message is to basically just um, pollinate the good lessons that I've taken from the environments that I've been in, from whether that be Denmark or that be Spain or how we set our, our company and pollinate that uh, across all the other companies that I get to reach and the audience that I get to reach and hopefully trigger some uh, some blooming, some, some new ideas that will end up, in fact, 
improving their life, improving improving work life. And uh, that's just satisfying in itself. And I think it's the same satisfaction that I derive from sharing my software. So Ruby on Rails is completely free. It's open source. Everyone can download the stuff that I've spent the last 15 years and tens of thousands of hours developing alongside thousands of other people who've also spent uh, probably combined millions of hours working on it. And it's all free. It's all there for the taking simply because um, there's a deep satisfaction in leveling up humankind. I know it's the uh, Ruby on Rails that I've worked with. It's, I mean, it's great open source, uh, open source software. I mean, it's, it's phenomenal what you have done and, and achieved with it. And, you know, just harkening back to uh, Denmark, I've been there, a beautiful country. Uh, we, we do have similarities between Denmark and the U.S., but the U.S. has arrived at Trump. And we, we have to dig ourselves out of that hole, which we, we took a hard right turn, which was... Yeah, um, I, I agree that. And, and I, I've obviously I've been living here for the past uh, fifteen years or so, uh, and, and I agree that 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 turn was a bad turn. But I also sometimes find it a little too convenient, a little too easy to blame all the American problems on that. And I think that there's some deep structural issues that Trump merely highlights. And in fact. In, in all the nastiness that that is, does a service in highlighting that the U.S. is screwed up in a bunch of fundamental ways that really is not dependent on whether Trump is in the White House or not. Um, just on the mere basics, one of the things that you really get to see in very stark contrast is the um, effects of things like healthcare or education. In, in Denmark and in Spain, uh, both of those basic human needs are provided by uh, a social system that takes care of everyone. I came from a uh, what would in the U.S. surely be classified as a poor background, yet I was able to get a wonderful education. Um, I was able to to get great medical treatment for I had a hearing impairment when I was a kid. Um, I got, I don't know, three operations without bankrupting my, uh, my family. I think there's just a bunch of fundamentals where the U.S. is just behind the curve and behind the curve in these sort of weird ways when when you arrive as a dane or as a spaniard uh to the u.s and you see like wait a minute this is the richest country on earth with filled with incredibly bright people who are able to do incredible things yet they can't figure out how to do the basics what the hell so i think that that uh what the hell um, impression is also part of what is in the, the books. Um, a key motivator for writing, it doesn't have to be crazy at work, was to watch uh, a large part of the entrepreneurial class in the U.S. continue to harp on deeply discredited notions of work ethics, that the way to have success was working 80, 100, or in some extreme cases, Marissa Mayer um, parroted 130 hours you could work a week if you were strategic with your bathroom breaks and your showers. And you go like, what an utterly miserable existence this is to promote and what a myopic view of success and entrepreneurship, um, especially when you look around the world and see there are many prosperous societies where these cultural viruses just haven't taken hold, that this isn't necessary in, in a bunch of other places around the world. So we want to spread that message and say, hello, like open your blinders, 
see around your yourself and, and look a little further than just, um, let's say, Silicon Valley for, for the tech industry or, or the American uh, entrepreneurial spirit in general and see that there are other people around the world who've actually arrived at better solutions of getting creativity and productivity out of uh, people and out of themselves without devoting the entire life that they have to just work, work, work. Yeah, it's, it's, it's insane. I mean, it's very, you know, I'm here in New York and I, I travel within the country and around the world and the hustle culture is, is at, at this point is almost at a deafening roar. I mean, the Marissa, the, the Yahoo stuff where she has to be strategic in her bathroom breaks to break into triple digits for a work week to me is laughable. But for a lot of people, they're, they're taking out their notebooks and taking notes. It's literally insane. And I, I talk about this for experience. I started my career off working in investment banking at Morgan Stanley. And I beat out 5,000 applicants um, to, you know, to work at a company 100 plus hours a week, which was soul crushing. Just here I was, worked, you know, worked really hard in high school and college and beat everybody out. I, I basically won the race to essentially just make pitch books that would then be tossed out, travel all over the world. But I would travel somewhere like you go to London and then you would land and then go to a hotel room and then go to a, 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 an office complex, pitch, get rejected and then fly home. So I wouldn't even see the location. And this, this was success. This was society's definition of success. And I abhorred it. I just, I, I couldn't believe it. And I think that what's really great about your book is this message to um, not only people who are living this, you know, scenario, some could call it a nightmare, um, but new college graduates or people in their in their 20s, or even people coming out of high school, to know that there's another way. Like this, you can work in another way and still be, quote-unquote, successful by society standards, but not, you know, sp you know, spend your life in traffic or, you know, get belittled in meetings. And, you know, we could go on and on and on and on. But I think that's, that's the real power and message of the book is to to not only reach people who are currently in jobs, but people who are going into jobs. A hundred percent. And a big part of that comes by deconstructing the myth of success and the glorification of overwork. And I think you're absolutely right when you say hustle mania, as we call it in the book, has just taken over, that it's become chic to be completely exhausted, chic to be completely sleep deprived, um, chic to eat shit, to not exercise, to not take care of yourself, all for what? Squeezing more hours in at the office? More hours that in most cases aren't even valuable. More hours that in many cases actually detract from what you're trying to do. If you're working in any creative field where you rely on sort of your peak mental capacity, you're doing yourself a huge disservice by trying to squeeze all these extra hours out because they end up being net negative. I work in programming and I know that if you're trying to, uh, let's say, drag 18 hours out of a day, um, the last eight 
are the ones you're going to have to spend the next week undoing because you're putting right. bugs in your software. You're, you're making mistakes. You're going the long way around. Uh, and a lot of fields are like this where the value of the creative insight is worth so much more than just pouring endless hours at it. So this whole notion, I mean, what I find so staggering is the fact that this is not novel information. This is not new. I mean, we've known since uh, Taylorism and Henry Ford in, in the what 1920s and 30s that a 40-hour work week is about what you can squeeze out of people and still expect to, um, to get great work. Yet we've somehow regressed back to a, a 19th century work ethic where like, oh, it's great to work Saturdays. It's great to work Sundays. Um, I mean, all we're missing basically is the slave labor or, or the uh, a child labor to, to complete the circle. Yet we're somehow almost um, sort of volunteering for those things, um, especially, I think, about the, the entrepreneurial spirit of, uh, of the next generation. There's so much focus on like, oh, this 14-year-old um, started this new company or the 16-year-old started this new company and was just focused on this the entire time and we're all applauding and we're all saying, isn't that wonderful? When I go like, no, it's not. Like, part of growing up is is actually going through those experiences and part of uh, then entering the workforce and living through your 20s is to do all the fucking wonderful things that are in your 20s. You don't get that decade back. So if you invest right. the 100 hours a week during your 20s and you don't get to enjoy any of the other spoils of being a 20-year-old, um, you're not going to look back as a 40-year-old and go like, oh, yeah, that was a great trade. Like, I, I wish I had spent even more yeah, hours it's... at the office. You're going to look back with regret. And that's just a terrible feeling. And I, I feel like we need to take down... Um, the chicness, the glorification of overwork, and expose it for what it actually is, which is human misery and burnout. Um, and once we've done that, we can start rebuilding, and we can start rebuilding a healthy image of what entrepreneurship, what work ethic uh, can look like. And when we do, I think we're going to find that um, there are plenty of places who already figured that out, that a 40-hour work week, for example, um, is plenty, that eight hours a day is enough and that it's more interesting and more fulfilling to figure out how to spend those eight hours well, rather than to see if we can squeeze out 16. And, and in your company, Basecamp, you have, you know, you have various measures where you, you'll cut down on email. Uh, there are, I think, no meetings or very few meetings. And it's, it's all based on, you know, I mean, everyone's virtual, so it's not even based on FaceTime. It's based on the output of, you know, a team getting together, working on that goal. And then obviously you're all working on your, your Basecamp platform, which is that, is that built on Ruby on Rails Basecamp? Yep. In fact, uh, Ruby on Rails was extracted from Basecamp. Basecamp was built before there was a Ruby on Rails. And all the stuff that I built as part of Basecamp became Ruby on Rails. But I'd say... Even more than just focusing on on uh, sort of the specific tactics, our value uh, around this or our goal is that uh, work hours should be long stretches of uninterrupted time. That that's really where the quote unquote magic happens. Giving someone the three, four, five hours of uninterrupted time without puncturing that and slicing it up with meetings or other interruptions, such that work end up being just a series of work moments. 
Um, there's a, a great focus on just quantity of hours. We have a focus on the quality of hours. And that the argument is that that's ultimately far more impactful. If you can allow someone to have four great hours where they can dive deep into a, a material problem, they can come up with those amazing solutions that otherwise can evade people for weeks at the time if they only get 45 minutes here and an hour and a half there because their workday is, is punctured or because their workday is simply full of either physical or electronic interruptions. The open office, for example, is one of the things that we rail against as being uh, an absolutely atrocity in terms of productivity and collaboration. There was just a new study out, I think came out after uh, we released the book, saying um, what usually happens when companies convert to open offices is that people grow more insular and they stop talking to each other as much as they did before because they simply can't focus. They put on their headphones, they try to ignore the interruptions the best they can, and, and then they try to get work done. Um, and the same thing with the virtual interactions. Uh, chat systems have been getting more popular. It's kind of ironic. Um, one of the early products that we made at Basecamp back in 2006 was a system called Campfire, which was a chat system much in the vein of, of Slack and the other systems that are popular today. And we had about a, a decade's lead on a lot of other companies and realizing, do you know what? Having a constant conveyor belt of information and decision-making running in the background is a really poor way of getting concentrated work done. Uh, if you're asking your employees to constantly keep half an eye on this moving chat conveyor belt, uh, it's almost impossible for them to also pay full attention to the work they have to do. Right. Um, yeah, it's, it's not, only, not only Slack, but you have you have Facebook, Instagram, your your cell phone. It's funny because I all, I work in a creative field. I own a media company, and the best work and the best ideas will come to me very early in the morning when there are zero distractions, or when I have two to three hours, or when I'm taking a shower, or taking a walk, or going for a run. Rarely to never will a creative breakthrough or solution come to me when I am in a meeting, uh, you know, answer an email, you know, fill in the blank, doing quote unquote, you know, busy work. And I think that, you know, with emails, like, I don't know, there was a study done where the majority of your, of certain corporate employees days are spent just dealing with their inbox. So they're, they're primarily there to deal with their inbox and go to meetings and then boom the day's over that's really the tragedy that work doesn't happen at work you can't get work done at work and that seems so loop-sided and your story is the same story we've heard from countless readers that they say i can only if i come in early in the morning or stay late at night or work the weekends basically at any time when work isn't happening, that's when I get my work done. Isn't that just a, a bankruptcy statement that we're unable to get work done at work during work hours? That seems just completely absurd. Um, and that's a lot of what we're trying to reset, to create an environment where work can happen at work, where people are happy to do and have creative breakthroughs from nine to five, and that that isn't an abnormality. Um, I think any company 
where, um, as you say, work can't happen at work and the creative insights can't happen from nine to nine or nine to five, need to self-diagnose and go, we're sick. We need medication. We need intervention. We need a remedy that this isn't a sustainable way of working. And that's, again, how we come back to why a lot of people end up, or a lot of companies end up asking people to work 60 or 80 hours or more a week because they simply can't get any of the work done that they're supposed to during the 40 that's allotted to it. And that's just a, a, a deep tragedy that uh, we want to open people's eyes to because I don't feel like uh, when you put it like that, the fact that work can't happen at work, no one is going to say, Oh, that's fair. Yeah, that's good. Like, that's fine. It, that, that doesn't matter. People will usually go like, oh, yeah, you're right. Um, right, right. So let, let, me, uh, let me talk to you about health and mental health, physical health, sleep. I spoke with uh, Jeffrey Pfeffer, who wrote a book called Dying for a Paycheck. And he, he's literally stating that corporations are, are killing people. Uh, and, and this is one of the statistics from the book. In one survey, 61% of employees said that the workplace stress had made them sick, and 7% said they had actually been hospitalized. Job stress costs U.S. employers more than $300 billion annually and may cause 120,000 excess deaths each year, w which is, if, you know... If this were, if we knew that you know toothbrushes were killing over a hundred thousand people a year, we'd do something about it. This is a, and what Jeffrey was saying is this is this silent epidemic. What what are your feelings on that? I couldn't agree more, and I think that that's one of the reasons why we focus, for example, all of our benefits uh, at Basecamp on getting people out of the office and recuperating away from the computer. So, for example, a lot of companies, especially in the tech world, they're all about having flashy perks and benefits at the office. Oh, we have a chef if you stay for dinner. Oh, uh, we have a game room so you can stay late. Oh, we have uh, uh, whatever it is that we have to keep you at the office, snack machines or, or, or catered lunches or whatever. Where when you look at it like that, it's really not that much of a perk um, when the trade is spent all your time at the office. I think a key aspect of mental health is to have time to recuperate, have downtime where uh, not only do you have time for sleep, you have time for something else to get on your, your mind, right? I find that many of the core breakthroughs that I've had over the years have come when I've spent a long weekend away or I've taken an actual vacation when I've gotten a, far enough away from the daily fray that I can have an overall picture of where we're going and why. That's when you start coming up with those interesting questions of, um, are we going in the right direction? And, and, and in many cases, the deep structural changes we've made at Basecamp has come as results of that. But I think it's even more physiological, I, I, too. Um, sleep, for example. Sleep has long been one of those things where the entrepreneurial class has gone, oh, you can sleep when you're dead. All I need is, is four to six hours. And the science is just overwhelmingly clear that that is not true. 
There's a great other uh, new book out called Why We Sleep that dives into why the vast majority of humans, they need seven and a half to eight and a half hours of sleep every night. And if you actually uh, dive into that, most people just aren't getting it. They're walking around perpetually sleep deprived. And the consequences that that has for their mental capacity, their overall life satisfaction, and their physical health is completely dire. And I feel like it's one of those things where... Um, employers often end up uh, furthering this and perpetuating this by celebrating workaholics. They go like, oh, Jim is such a, a team player. He stayed until 3 a.m. to finish the proposal, and, and he got up again at 7 to meet the client. Yeah, there's four hours in between those things. That's nothing to celebrate. That's nothing to put on a pedestal. In fact, we should go like, hey, um, Jim really screwed up. He didn't get a good night's sleep before an important meeting with a client. That's not what we do here. Um, so at Basecamp, we've taken several steps to um, kind of help this along. One thing we did was a couple of years back, we gave everyone a sleep tracker. Uh, I found that using an actual sleep tracker that'll tell you exactly both A, how much sleep you get, how much REM sleep you get, and how much deep sleep you get has been pivotal for me personally of getting better sleep hygiene, which ends up creating sort of a more healthy and, and happy me. Um, we've done the same thing actually around uh, in-air quality. Uh, one of the problems of a lot of both home and work offices is that the air we breathe is dirty and stale. And there's a bunch of new research that's really interesting on, on just the core things of uh, CO2 essentially poisoning. That if you stay in a, a room and you work in a room that has poor ventilation um, and thus have CO2 accumulation, you end up uh, having serious mental um, sort of consequences from that. And, and you, you fail on all sorts of measures of strategic thinking, creative thinking, and so forth. So there's a bunch of these factors that I feel uh, employers should be spending time on uh, sorting out health, sleep, uh, air quality, rather than, again, as we say, trying to squeeze more hours out. It's, it's such a crude and uh, ultimately uh, pointless and harmful way of trying to increase productivity. There's all these tools available for the taking that are neither expensive nor endlessly sophisticated. They just require the will, the insight, and a little bit of curiosity about the basics of the human condition and how we thrive. But a lot of managers and business owners just seem utterly uninterested in just scratching the bare surface. Yeah, and I've uh, my listeners have heard this story before, but I can speak from experience about sleep deprivation. About 10 years ago, I was running a uh, a website called findadoc.com, which was like a, a Zagat type ratings for doctors and dentists. My development team was over in India, so it was a 12 hour difference. So for about six months, I would routinely get three to four hours of sleep. And I was patting myself on the back of how hard I was working. By about month three or four, I was, I was gaining significant weight, I was irritable. Uh, my, my stomach was a disaster. The breaking point for me was I would constantly just fall asleep. Like on the weekends, I would just sit down and I'd fall asleep. The, the breaking point for me was I was driving on the FDR in Manhattan with my wife and two young boys in the car, and I fell asleep. I just I literally passed out at the wheel, 
And thank God, I, I just woke, I don't know how long I was out. My wife didn't notice, but I, I literally could have killed not only myself, but my entire family because I was, you know, burning the candle at both ends. And at that point, I was like, you know what? This is not worth it. Absolutely. I think it really goes to the fact that this isn't some abstract notion of health. This is a very concrete notion of life and death. And as as your your, your guest from Dying for a Paycheck is saying, that we are absolutely killing ourselves. And it just feels for what? Like, at least if there was a purpose, at least if there was an outcome that was somehow glorious and magnificent enough that you could say, oh, that was worth it. Like, I'm, I'm happy I cut 20 years off my life or I'm happy I ran the risk that I, I'd crash a car from sleep deprivation. But there isn't. Like, we're just doing the same work uh, in many ways that we've always been doing. We're just doing it worse in worse ways. And I feel like that was a, a, a key uh, impetus for us writing the book is that there's an overall regression that we've gotten worse as a society, um, especially in sort of entrepreneurial circles. We've gotten simply worse and we've forgotten things that the medical community um, uh, work uh, studies have already shown. And that feels truly tragic. One thing is that if you're exploring a new space and, and you don't know everything and, and you're trying to figure it out, but here we have all the results. We have all the knowledge. It's it's akin to if half the population tomorrow decided, you know what, maybe smoking is a good idea. Let's start smoking <laughs> again. Um, let's right. just start smoking in bars. Let's start smoking on airplanes. Uh, it can't be that bad, really, can it? Well, yeah, it can. We have 60 years of medical research basically so showing how bad it is. Um, and that's where we are with a lot of work practices. We're regressing to a prior state, a, a unenlightened state. It's kind of the dark ages of work practices. And why would we do that willingly? So what Jason and I are trying to do is, is to just call that out. Hey, you're heading into the dark ages. Like, open your damn eyes and see right. that, that that's not the place to be or a place to go. And, and I think, you know, for a lot of, um, for a lot of people, whether they be entrepreneurs, employees or managers is nobody really sits down and, and asks themselves to, you know, what does success look like for me? Like, what, what do I want out of, out of this life? As opposed to just listening to what society thinks that you need to be happy and, you know, listening to, advertising messages, the bigger car, uh, the bigger house, uh, the boat, the vacations. But what it really comes down to, and there, there have been studies, is that we value re deep relationships, uh, connection, um, you know, time with loved ones. Like the, the happiness hit or the contentment hit that you get from a brand new BMW is fleeting at best. It happens. You get a nice little dopamine hit. But then days or weeks later, it's just another thing that you got to deal with. You got to, you know, the windshield wiper breaks. You got to bring it into the shop. You know, it, it's a, it's another. It's almost like another liability. And I think that's one of the one of the big things is what what's what is successful to you? What what's gonna? And it's not maybe it's not happiness. Maybe it's contentment. It's it's defining that. And I think that you know for yourself and Jason. You've defined that with Basecamp and then also, you know, how you treat your employees, which is a, basically a foundation of trust and freedom, which is unheard of. I, I work with, 
Fortune 500 companies, uh, major networks and studios and brands. It's unheard of. It's unheard of to trust your employees to accomplish the work unless you're not physically there or to trust them to, you know, take a vacation and you're not calling sick. You know, you can fill in the blank. It is literally unheard of. Yeah. I, and I mean, isn't that, again, another declaration of bankruptcy, that if we can't trust our employees, what are they doing working for us? Why would I trust someone on our support team to talk to customers, be the face of the company if I didn't trust them? Why would I trust someone to uh, do the programming, the design of new features um, that's going to go in front of customers if I didn't trust them? There's such a loop-sided and um, disconnected sense around this trust um, idea that also I feel like is rooted in uh, prehistoric times, the line of sight idea of trust, that if I can see butts in seats, then I know that they're working, which just, it falls apart on the slightest amount of scrutiny. If you don't think that people can goof off at the office in front of a computer at a desk, I mean, you were born yesterday, right? Uh, oh, think- oh, definitely. They, they actually, you can buy programs that makes it look like you're coding or answering emails that literally will run like a looped video on your screen. It, right. uh, it, it's, it's so easy. It's so easy to look busy. So it doesn't work to enforce um, busyness. You can't enforce right. productivity. You can enforce busyness, I should actually say. You can certainly do that, but you cannot em- enforce productivity and you cannot enforce progress. That has to come simply because the people doing the work are doing great work. But I think to your original question about deciding where you want to do, that is the second part of the book. So the, the first part of the book is all about how we spend our time, the quality of an hour. And the second part of the book is is investigating our ambitions. And I think our ambitions have gotten away from us for a lot of people uh, in the U.S. that no one is happy simply creating a nice multi-million dollar business. Everyone, at least in tech circles in the entrepreneurial world, are all about getting to be a unicorn, to getting a, a, a billion dollar business without any regard for the odds between those two solutions. If you're trying to simply build a nice million-dollar business with, uh, I don't know, 20, 30, 50, as in our case, employees, that has so much better odds than trying to become the next Facebook or Google or whoever it is. But we've let the uh, business model of investors and venture capital in particular set the goalposts for all of entrepreneurial classes in in, in much of uh, tech in particular, my industry, uh, and I think media as well. And I think that, that is absolutely toxic. So what we try to set out instead is to say, here's another way to do it. One, don't have goals. We don't have any goals. Our goal is to make a nice product, be profitable, take good care of our employees, and personally have enough fun that we want to get up in the morning and go to work. That's it. There aren't any goals to meet some quarterly metrics. There aren't any treadmills of being having to have a certain growth rate. There aren't any ideas that unless the hockey stick keeps going up and to the right, we're failing. We're rejecting all of that and saying, we're in a great place. In fact, we're going further than that. Um, about uh, a year and a half ago, we instituted a hiring freeze at Basecamp. Not because things were going bad, but because they were going better than they ever had. At the time of the hiring freeze, Basecamp... Uh, had just posted the best numbers it's ever had. And we went, 
this is good. This is enough. We don't need more than this. We can simply look at what we have and say, Jason and I, as two people who like doing the work as well, I like to program and Jason likes to design, we can do that when we have about 50 people. That's manageable. If we grow to 150, 200, 300, 500 people, we can't do that anymore. We have to be full-time managers, and managers is, is all we can do. I don't want to do that. And why would we have to? A lot of um, business people take it for granted that you must feed this beast of exponential growth. And unless you do it, you're failing. Well, we've said we don't want to feed the beast. We're happy with where we are, even if that means that the company... Uh, stops growing at, at a rapid clip, if we're just keeping our uh, where we are right now uh, at, a, at an even keel and keeping up with inflation, it's good enough. Like when you already have a company that's generating millions of dollars of profit every year, um, you should take a step back and go like, what are the things I actually want out of life? It's not another zero at the end of my bank account. It is exactly, as you say, more time with the two kids that I have, time enough to go drive race cars as a hobby as I do, time to read more books, time to sit outside in the sun and do nothing, um, time to do all the things that embody a full life. And if we can't do that, um, who can? And that's really the question that I always have for these um, fantasies, like Marissa May saying she can work 130 hours. If she, one of the most powerful executives in the world of technology, at least for a while, at least at that time, um, have to work 130 hours, what's the hope for the rest of humanity? Um, and really, have we summed up the meaning of life into our spend in the office? That is just uh, truly dystopian. And I think actually worse than uh, a lot of previous ages were at least people were forced into that, right? You could say like, hey, if you're you're a, a subsistence farmer somewhere and you simply have to work 16 hours a day, otherwise there's not going to be enough grain to feed your family. Do you know what? I can respect that. I cannot respect um, an executive that already has tens of millions of dollars in the bank account saying, I'm going to work 130 hours. I'm going to be strategic about my bathroom breaks. I'm going to essentially not see my family or kids or even contemplate starting one um, because there's no room for that. I'm going to have no other interests or endeavors in this life than time spent at the office. What an impoverished view of life. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't agree more. And it's just add, you know, adding the zeros. Um, you know, more is, is just never enough. And it's, it's a death spiral. I, I mean, I... I know individuals who are well into the eight, nine figures, and they're miserable because they're, they're, they'll judge themselves for, you know, against Mark Zuckerberg or Bill Gates. It, it, it's, it's, and, the, and these um, uh, guys and girls, they have more money than you could literally try to spend. They, it's, it's insane, and it's just you know, more houses and more art and more boats and more planes. It's, it's crazy. And also too, just going back to what you were saying, I couldn't agree more is, you know, you look at it in the news and you're like, Oh, Facebook is success. Oh, Instagram is success. But what they don't see was, you know, the 10 or 20 years it took to get to that. And the probability of building a Facebook, a Twitter an Instagram is so remotely small. Your, your chances in entrepreneurship are, are bad enough. 
to to create a unicorn or a billion dollar company is just tiny, tiny. And you could, you know, create a company like you said, where you look at your, you know, your life first, as opposed to a, the paycheck or the money, and then create your life, and then your business would support that life. And if that means that you only want to work three days a week, so be it. If you want to work from 10 p.m. to 3 a.m. and then get up the next morning at noon, then so be it. And I think that's the beauty of the internet and uh, the, uh, the uh, mobile apps, all that stuff, is there are tons of opportunities to do that. And the irony is that it, of what affords us those opportunities also affords us all the distractions that could constantly derail us off of that. But I think that there is, um, you know, why not, you know, why not, why shouldn't your goal be to create a five person, $1 million business or even a one person, $1 million business? Your, your odds are far better than trying to create the next Facebook. Absolutely. So when I think back of the history of, of our company, which just turns 20 this year from its original inception, and I look back at the different phases we've been through, I was as satisfied and had all my needs taken care of when we were seven people, when we were 10 people. In some ways and in some regards, that was a better company for me. Like I had more fun. So that was the part of the reaction where at 50 people we went, do we just want to let this go on autopilot? Do we just want to continue hiring and growing just because that's what you're supposed to do? Or should we heed the lessons of all the other entrepreneurs that we've talked to who keep talking about the good old days? Ah, oh, remember when we were just like 20 people and we had so much fun and everything was so direct and now I have three layers of reporting and, and whatever. And, and a lot of them sound miserable, as you say, that even when you get supposed success, it doesn't actually... It doesn't look that nice. Like if you asked Mark Zuckerberg right now, let's just take the last two years. Does, did he have a good time the last two years? I don't no, think he did. No, no I don't One think of the he richest did. people in the world <laughs> controlling um, the most influential tech platform in the world. And I think he was absolutely miserable for uh, probably the majority of the time over the last several many years. Look at someone like Elon Musk. Um, again, a huge idol for a lot of people. And when I look at him, I just see sadness i see a person falling apart um and i see someone yeah absolutely stricken by sleep deprivation uh delusions depression and and all these other things and it, that's not to put him down it's it's to have sympathy with the man um although i'd say i have more sympathy for the people who have to work for him um the story of his absolutely callous leadership style are atrocious and i feel that's often disregarded when we go with this great man theory that oh well uh Tesla absolutely needed this great man and only Elon can do it. First of all, bullshit. Survivorship bias bullshit. Second of all, um, see what's below the top layer before you heap all this uh, admiration uh, upon the, the top kingpin. Um, endless stories of people getting fired for willy-nilly reasons after putting in and sacrificing so much in ways that just seems absolutely callous and cruel. I don't think we should be celebrating that at all. But my point more here is that these are not typically what you would look at and say happy people. Like a bunch of the Jeff Bezos. Jeff invested um, in 
um, in 37 Signals uh, before we changed our name to Basecamp. And our company back in 2006 made a minority investment. Richest man in the world. His life right now also looks like perhaps not so calm, right? And when I look at either of those, I don't see myself mirrored as like, oh, I wish I was there. I wish I was that billionaire sitting in that chair. I go, this is pretty good. I, I, <laughs> I'm good. I'm good where I am. I'm good with the 50 people we have. I'm, I'm good with just making millions, not billions. Um, and when I see the disparity between those two life outcomes, I go like, why aren't more people trying to just do what we're doing? Why aren't more try people trying to be mere millionaires and capable of enjoying their life in the uh, relative obscurity of not being a famous billionaire and not being responsible for a platform of 1.5 billion? Now, that's not to say that it's not good on some level of good, I suppose, um, for society to have people who strive for that. But do we really need that many to strive for it? Do we really need that to be the sole right. focus of entrepreneurship in this country? I don't think so. Um, and I think we need to redirect our efforts and say, do you know what? There's still going to be the Mark Zuckerbergs and the Elon Musks of the world, and that's fine. We just don't need every other young person to want to emulate that, and we need to reset. Um, and I think part of that comes through um, kind of communicating the fact, the realistic picture of what their lives are actually like, and then going is that the life you you're aspiring to is that the life you truly want and and why is it because you see on instagram the this endless parade of material goods or um fancy vacations or whatever mm, bad reason in my opinion um that was one of the reasons um uh, along with the reason that facebook is in my opinion the despicable company that i stopped using instagram because i felt like i was feeding that myth cycle but yeah Things have worked out pretty well for me. I have a lot of material goods that I can show off, and, and I did. And do you know what? Now I regret that. I don't want to feed that cycle. And I feel it's, it's actually um, distracting and uh, sort of devious almost um, to lure people into thinking like, this is the good life, these pictures of things. Yeah, and you know, social media is a whole other... Uh, topic of discussion where you where people are seeing these curated these curated posts and curated life of their of their best moments and no and nobody has a life like that just it, it, it's it's basically advertising and it's been shown that uh, people who consume social media uh, more uh, have higher uh, bouts of depression anxiety it, it's it's a nightmare scenario, and you can see it on the faces of the Zuckerberg, Elon Musk. They're they're just. It's not only what's happening to them. You can almost see it like their their inner voice playing out. Like, and their you know their their modus operandi is to win. You know, to increase uh, shareholder value, in, increase the stock prices, and they're just getting hammered. And you and they're. And, you know, with someone like Mark and Elon, they're taking it personally. And what, what it's doing to them internally and also externally to their mental and physical health, you, that's not worth a billion dollars. It's not worth five billion dollars. Certainly not to me. And I think we need to make sure the more people are posing that question. What do I actually want? And to pose that question from a basis of being able to answer it, which requires some illumination that the 
societal um, lures need to be exposed for what they are. And the people who've gone through that need to tell a proper account of what it's like. So that's what I'm kind of trying to do. And that's why I stopped feeding this myth monster on, on Instagram to, to try to tell like the happiness and contentment and the meaning of my life on a daily, weekly, monthly basis. It's not governed by the number of cars I have, the size of my house or whatever. It's doing this meaningful work. It's doing getting into a flow state, getting into a, a creative rhythm, and that these things are achievable at a much lower level. Now, none of these things take apart the um, entrepreneurial aspirations of, of wanting to get to a certain level where, for example, you don't have to worry about the, the price of a meal, um, I certainly enjoy that. I certainly enjoy not having to, to worry about the, the cost of bills or, or whatever. But you reach that tipping point so much sooner than a billion dollars than most people realize that the tipping right. point between oh material things um, is, is something that's a constant source of worry and concern and uh, it not being that anymore is quite low. I'd say, in fact, that uh, for our business, we reached that when when Jeff made this tiny, in his uh, world, minority investment into our company. And, and we got a couple of million dollars and we kicked that into our bank accounts. And all of a sudden, we went back to doing what we were doing before, just with a bit less anxiety and a bit less worry. Um, and that seems like that should be an aspirable goal, that people should try to reach for that because it's so much easier, as you say. The odds of building a million-dollar business are endlessly better than the odds of building a billion-dollar business. And they are in opposition a lot of the times. When you try to go for that billion-dollar idea, you often end up with absolutely nothing. Um, and that just seems tragic. And so do you think that you know the the message that you're putting forth with your books and your and with Basecamp is resonating with people. Like the only the only other company that I could think of that would be similar to your um, you know the way you run things, um, how you treat employees, um, and how transparent art you are. It would be Patagonia, which is not a technology company. I mean, Patagonia makes kind of high tech clothing. Um, but so I guess my question is, do you, are, are there other examples and do you think that, you know, people will listen to, listen to this because there's the deafening roar of this society message of millionaire, you know, become a, a um, an Instagram influencer. It's like, it's like the fast track. Right. They, everyone thinks that there's a fast track to entrepreneurship, but what they don't realize, and I'm sure what you've experienced through Basecamp and what have I experienced through building my companies is it's not um, it's not going to happen in a week. It's not going to happen in a month. It's not going to happen in a year. It might not happen in a decade. It, it might take 15 years. You know, and you have to be, you have to persevere. You're going to, going to deal with a lot of stuff, but it doesn't happen overnight. And people read, you know, even Facebook, I mean, Instagram, I mean, it got shorter and shorter, but it wasn't an overnight success. It took time. Most things are. And exactly because even when it turns out well, it might take 10 years. You better make damn sure that the journey was worth it. That if it does not work, which most things don't, 
even if you're trying to aim for a modest, as we call it, million dollar business, odds are it's not going to work. The odds are much better that it will, but they're still against you. Uh, most businesses fail. But given that fact, given the fact that you're going to spend your life like that, and you may invest 10 years of your life into something that did not work, that did not give the big payoff, why wouldn't you take the precautions to make sure that that was time well spent, given the odds? What I wanted to do with Basecamp was to to look at how we were working and say, if this, if we spent 10 years on this and have to shut it down because it didn't work, I want to look back at those 10 years and beam with pride that we did, we worked well, that I spent my 20s well, I spent my 30s well, I don't have regrets, even in the face of quote unquote failure. And I think that that's the mistake a lot of people make is that they're so intent on reaching success that they throw everything at it. It's double or nothing. And as as you'll see going to a casino, playing double or nothing, the house wins. And I think that's how it is in entrepreneurship as well. The house wins. Most businesses fail. So take your precautions. Make sure right, your life is set up in such a way, that work is set up in such a way that you can endure it if it doesn't work, that it is not a devastating fact at the end. Right. It's the, uh, it's the old saying, it's, it's the journey, not the destination. Yeah. And I think it, it really just comes down to that life satisfaction of, of what it is that you, you take out of life. And what I've taken out is I enjoy working. I enjoy other things too, but working is fun. Creating something and making something from nothing is intensely motivating. So I have found that I want to do that about 30 or 40 hours a week. I do it about 30 hours a week in the summer, and I do it about 40 hours a week the rest of the year. That's a that's a good amount of time. And then even if, if as we've had at Basecamp, I've worked on all sorts of things at Basecamp that didn't turn out to be a big success. We've had other products along the way that we ended up shutting down, but never did I look back on any of those efforts with a tinge of regret because it was it was part of a whole integrated, balanced, and fulfilled life. And that's the kind of aspiration I do want to point people towards. And I found um, found uh, sort of a source of, of inspiration in, in two different um, areas of philosophy. One is Stoicism. Um, there's a great introduction book called The Guide to the Good Life, which goes exactly uh, to these questions we've been talking about for the past hour and answers those questions from 2,500 years ago. And you go, how the hell did they know? Well, because the human condition really isn't that different. And that these echoes over time on how we spend our time, what's the value of wealth, what's the value of relationships, they've been pretty static. That, that things don't actually change that much on the uh, base level of the human condition. So the answers from 2,500 years ago from people like Seneca or Marcus Aurelius or Epictetus, they're still valid. They're still true. So I found a lot of, uh, of, of good stuff in that, particularly around loss aversion and dealing with uh, sort of the consequences of failure. And then on the other hand, I've found as a more recent tradition, um, existentialism um, from authors like uh, Sartre and, and Kierkegaard, um, giving us more of a, 
sort of a broader perspective of what is life, what is worth living, and, and what's worth doing. And I'd find that uh, if if more entrepreneurs invested some time in reading some of the classics on both of those topics, they'd be much better off than if they read the latest how to crush it in 10 days, how to become uh, an overnight success, or, or any of the other parodies of entrepreneurial success that, um, that kind of come up and fade away very quickly. Books that have stood this, uh, the, the test of time, the 2,000-year test of time, probably have something to tell you, and, um, and, and you'd be wise to pay attention. Yeah, it's it's such it's sound advice, and it's so simple. It's like if you're if you're running a race, and you're you're expending all this energy and time, wouldn't it be beneficial to take a moment and and ask yourself, where am I going? Like what? It, most people don't ask that simple, fundamental question of, you know. What do I want? How do I feel? Where am I going? They just keep on pushing on because maybe their parents told them to do that or society told them to do that or they are, you know, they want all the material trappings of, of a successful life and they think that's going to bring them contentment and happiness. And uh, what happens to a, the, the far majority of people is they wake up you know, they live that life and they wake up in their 40s, 50s and 60s and realize that oh, I've made I've made a terrible mistake. And, you know, for some people, you know, that regret is just unbearable. It's just it, it, it's literally too much to take in. If you, you know, been living a life that, you know, was decided by someone else and you didn't even have the knowledge of it, it's, it's, it's terrible. That's really part of what I do when I talk to people about my lessons and the lessons I've taken away from both Stoicism and uh, existentialism is to take out an insurance policy against that level of existential regret that I do not want to be the person who ends up at 50 or 60 and look back and say, shit, I wasted it. I chased the things that weren't worth chasing. So the insurance policy I've tried to take out is to learn from the people who've gone through that path, observe the people who are currently seeped in it, and go, um, let, let's take a step back here. Let's evaluate um, where we're ending up. And to end up in such a way where I can feel like life was long enough, life was well lived, and now it's over. I think it's one of the reasons why there's such a zest for life extension in a lot of Silicon Valley circles. It's because they're realizing they're pissing their life as it is away, and they need more of it to make it worthwhile. And I, I don't think so. I, I'm going to be very happy if I make it to, let's say, 85, and that was it. That was the run. Um, because I, I know that I will have diligently paid attention and spent my time in ways where I thought, this was time well spent. This was a good day's work. This was a good life's work. This was a good life lived. Yeah, and, and that's, you know, that's very profound. Um, and there, there's a, a huge sense of contentment, you know, to be found there. But, you know, again, most, most people, this is, I, I, you know, I hope a lot of people listen to this. I hope everyone goes out and gets your book. It doesn't have to be crazy at work. I enjoyed it. I 
I didn't read it. I listened to it on Audible. Shout out to Audible. Um, and it was it was great. It's, it's a great message. Uh, okay, David. Well, thank you so much for taking the time out today to uh, talk with me and uh, to our listeners on the Work and Experience podcast. I truly appreciate it. Um, I was going to ask you where can people find you on social media, but I know you have <laughs> trashed your Instagram. Are you on any sort of social platform at all or no? I'm on Twitter as uh, my one vice of social media. Um, okay, and what's DHH, your handle? At DHH on Twitter. It's a, a sporadically high volume feed with a lot of the topics we've talked about today, but also thrown in politics and technology and everything else for good measure. So that might be a little high volume. Otherwise, I write longer pieces on signalbnoise.com. That's our blog that also celebrates 20 years this uh, this year. And finally, I appear on the Rework podcast, which is a podcast that Basecamp puts out. Uh, I'm on there pretty frequently. So that's also a good place to catch me. Excellent. And of course, you can um, get David's book at uh, Amazon. It doesn't have to be crazy at work. Highly recommend it. And David, thank you again so much for being on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. This was great. Okay, everyone. Thank you so much. Thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode of The Working Experience. We'd like to thank our sponsors, One Circle Media and the Still Believe app the only app that delivers video proof of the Tooth Fairy and Santa by simply taking a picture. Download the app at stillbelieve.co today and amaze your kids. And if you work for a studio, network, startup, or corporation and are looking for a partner to create media that will build, engage, and entertain your audience, reach out to me at john, J-O-H-N, at onecirclemedia.com or DM me on Instagram at John Brancaccio, J-O-H-N-B-R-A-N-C-A-C-C-I-O. I'd love to hear from you. And thanks again for listening to another episode of The Working Experience.